Welcome back to Rockstock Channel. It is Friday, September 8th, and Rodney and I are going to begin weekly conversations beginning now through the rest of this year. And for those of you who may have missed our most recent ASX Lithium Rocks, where we featured 10 hard rock companies listed on the ASX, we would encourage you to watch that highly viewed video from last week. Before we start today's video, we'd like to thank our two sponsors. Brianfield Services Company Zalandez and Investor Lithium Royalty Corp, listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange, ticker symbol LIRC. We'll share more about these sponsors later in the video. There's been a lot of news flow since we, Roddy and I have talked about for months that there's been a lot of M&A discussion, a lot of conversations from the BMO conference in February to PDAC, etc. And we were surprised that there wasn't more corporate activity but over the summer, we had expected come September, we would have a lot more. And there's this concept of a, of a merger Monday when markets are, are ripe. And, and this Monday, we had the Liontown Albemarle news. We also had some news from Mineral Resources and Alita. We're going to talk, talk about both of those shortly, but um, we want to talk first about one of the presenters at ASX Lithium Ion Rocks was... Atlantic Lithium, where Neil Herbert, the chairman, indicated the high probability of, in the near term of receiving an investment from the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Ghana, and that has actually happened. So, Rodney, why don't you talk a little bit about that $33 million investment, and the stock is up 25% in London. Uh, it was only up like 4% on the ASX, so that demonstrates that, that London still dominates trading of this stock. There could have been an arbitrage opportunity there if you had bought Australia ahead of what the London people interpret and understand about this, the, the, the importance of this investment. So Howard, it's not finalized per se. So I'm sure you saw that in the announcement, it was a, effectively an MOU, but the investment is split between equity. It's about 20 million shares, give or take around 21p. So getting it at a great price and then a direct investment into the effectively the Ghanaian lithium portfolio. So at more of a, a project level. So it still will need to be finalized, but of course it is a, it's a huge validation for the likelihood of the project going ahead if the sovereign fund is uh, prepared to make the investment. And I think fair to say that that's likely to be followed in fairly close succession with permitting or licensing of the project. We'll wait to see how the royalty and free carry and all of that gets finalized as well. But the sense was it won't be a material change, so it will be good to see a positive story come out of come out of Africa. I think, given recent news elsewhere, I always like to remind people: you've got to understand, in terms of ranking on the Fraser Institute, literally the bottom three countries in the world is Mali, DRC, and Zimbabwe, and uh, the top ones in Africa are Botswana and Ghana. It is a little perplexing when people talk about Africa as a country, effectively, but it isn't. Ghana has a long history in the gold market. And so I would say that this is encouraging and I'm hoping it's going to be followed now by a firm transaction with the fund and licensing. 
Yeah. Atlantic Lithium is a, a client of RK Equities. This is not investment advice to your own research, but I did speak to the company last night and asked about, yeah, it's non-binding, but I think it's more than just an MOU. This press release contains a significant quote from the Sovereign Wealth Fund manager in addition to Atlantic's chairman. There are very significant details. There may be some changes in the details, but I think it's a fairly sophisticated investment. I don't know. It looks a very Western style investment that you don't typically see out of Africa. The equity deal had a half warrant attached at a 40% premium, uh, but then that was only a small bit of the investment. The, the, the bulk of the investment was for, I think, three or three and a half percent at a project level, which equated to $165 million kind of project value. It is for the whole Cape Coast portfolio, not just the Owoya asset. But it's a meaningful number, $30 million, and they will on fund further at a project level uh, to maintain their interest uh, over time. And, and there was also some optionality for some offtake. But oh, sorry, if I can just jump in here, that's a great point to make, because in the end, when we had the conversation with Atlantic, their outstanding CapEx was about $57.5 million. So this is going to go some way to substantially reducing what Atlantic has to chip in for its share once Piedmont's done its 70 million. The other thing is I did say it's, it's effectively non-binding. However, I would say that the due diligence that the fund has done has not been, you know, in the last couple of months, they have had a long and detailed due diligence on this deal. So this isn't a rushed deal where they've put something out there and, and One's uncertain. They've had a substantial period of time to do an assessment. Yeah. And the expectation is that it's going to take probably three months to get this to final binding because there's a lot of agreements that need, there's multiple subsidiaries at Ghana as well as the parent level. So there's multiple agreements that need to be signed and there's not that many deals of this type being done. So the sophistication on the side of the Sovereign Wealth Fund in papering this deal in Ghana will take some time. But my sense is that it's highly likely to go through and it's highly likely to be followed. It's a different agency that needs to approve the mine permit, but this is the Sovereign Wealth Fund of Ghana, right? This is the next milestone and very important. You've talked about it. The key catalyst for the company is the mining permit, but the stock has been under severe pressure since February when there was a short report on Piedmont, which highlighted in particular problems within Ghana. Atlantic was the collateral damage of that short report on Piedmont. Piedmont didn't react, their stock didn't react like too much. So Atlantic stock was, I think, in in, in the high 30s on the aim. It's It, it hit 20 and now it's up 20 5%, but only to, to 25p relative to Aleo Lithium, which we could talk about briefly, uh, which began trading after, uh, I don't know how many months uh, you talked about Molly, one of the worst in the Fraser Institute, and there was a coup there. That stock was halted for months and opened down 50%. I haven't followed that story too closely. I'd encourage our viewers, we, we've had, we've been watching a bit this podcast, Money of Mine, the three Aussies in, in Perth, who, who did a good analysis of this transaction last week, as well as the Lita Lion Town. But did, do you have any view on Leo Lithium as a comp valuation-wise uh, and political risk-wise vis-a-vis Atlantic? Yeah, not necessarily. If you The project itself is superb. It does have 
a substantial transport route to port. But the project itself is fantastic. Blocking DSO is not the end of the world. They had to, Ganfin is now up to, it's going to be 55, 45 as I understand it for them to fund the balance, but until the middle of next year. So I, I would, if they're assuming there are no hugely onerous terms coming up between now and, and production or any further changes and they left to their own devices to get on with it. Leo lithium is in my opinion, cheap. Atlantic is a separate thing. Leo lithium is ready to go. Atlantic, if it's de-risked for the permitting and then Piedmont starts to spend, and then this money comes in from the, the mining fund, then of course it's going to be a good thing. But in terms of tonnage, it's less than, than Leo lithium, but both, I would say, is undervalued, but I, I don't have a good handle on Mali politics. Okay, let's turn to just briefly Alita. I put out a tweet when I saw Minrez was bidding a billion dollars for it. That was disclosed, but it, it doesn't look like it's a done deal yet. I spoke to some people uh, who indicated that th th there's... Unlike Liontown, which has like Green Hills as an advisor who's heavily incentivized to close a deal and earn a success fee, Green Hills uh, was also the advisor to Kidman in, in their sale to West Farmers. But in the situation of Alita, it's like bankruptcy, receivers, a process, I think, and there seems to be a dispute between two of the advisors as to whether or not there should be a full auction or I don't know all the details, but one person commented to me that Alita is a very profitable company. And there's lots of cash. Like normally bankrupt companies don't have very much money and there's a concern about cash. In this case, there's plenty of cash and there's a bit of a, a fee fest for Corda Metha and, and the other advisors. So th there could be some incentive on the side of the advisors to drag this out. I don't know, but one, there, there are certainly other players in there. Uh, but I, I just mentioned that, I think you, you called it like the Kalgoorlie Stampede, I think is Bald Hill in, in yeah. Kalgoorlie. Uh, Rodney, stampede, yeah. yeah, okay. I think like Global Lithium's mana is 80 kilometers away from Bald Hill and Mineral Resources has a stake in Global Lithium. So that whole area is, is hot for M&A. It's you've got Essential, you've got all the guys around there. So that's why I called it the Kalgoorlie Stampede because it's, it's evolved into a major lithium mining hub. So Minres is keen on it. And they've got a strong foothold in that area and a couple of others as well. So it, it makes sense for them to want to do it. But I guess Chris Ellison is eating his own cooking with the quote that you always say, if you own the rock, you're God. So he's going for it. He's gunning for it hard. He seems to be everywhere. Well, it's not the only thing he's shooting. A billion for. dollars would be a big number. It's not that, yeah, that was the question, you know, in terms of how would the debt look and they've got a payment still coming from Albemarle and the net offset. I mean, they could of course give some shares away. You've got to get your sort of gearing to just the right level, but he, he's clearly decided he has flexibility on the downstream. He feels either intermediate or tolling in China or wherever else. So he's decided own the rock and Albemarle's going the same route. I'm sure we'll discuss, you know, with a line town bid and a stake in Patriot. So the guys are snapping up everything that's in sight. And it's, you know, in a way, Howard, it's, it's quite a clever move because there are only certain companies and 
countries that can bid in Australia. That's why they're getting, getting booted out of Elite effectively. Yeah, exactly. If Mineral Resources does take this, and Albemarle is taking Liontown, most likely, it is the like the Spodumene oligopoly or duopoly reasserting itself. Although Minres and Albemarle are now like more competing with each other now that they've split a bit. But overall, Albemarle is very disciplined. I don't think Minres is necessarily as disciplined, but having consolidated assets in fewer hands, I think is good to maintain meaningful going forward. Another thing, Howard, that's really helpful is if you're going to make an intermediate product or you're going to have an integrated operation outside of China, you're going to be able to service the markets where you've got a better handle and look through as to how you control price. Whereas if you send it to an independent converter in China or it goes to CATL and, and BYD, you've got less of a handle on it. So that seems to be the theme. It's the whole Kemerton and then Albemarle. Yes, it will ship to China, but it'll convert in its two new plants. Minres will have control over how they do it and who they supply to. And let's be honest, that sulfate's likely to go to Europe, possibly the US. So I think net for net, I, as a an investor and looking at our clients, would rather see Spodgerman being held and controlled, as I've always said, do you want a non-integrated converter in China with an opaque balance sheet, a tier two or three converter to set the price, or do you want Albemarle and Minres to set the price? I'd much rather have a large balance sheet Western company setting the price. Definitely. Jumping in here from the editing room to tell you about our two sponsors, Zalandes and Lithium Royalty Corp. Zalandes provides services in subsurface data visualization, downhole geophysics, and other services for lithium brine operations. They just expanded into North America. And no matter where you sit in the brine industry, Zalandes can help you speed up and improve your projects. Go to zalandes.com for more. Lithium Royalty Corp is at the center of a global energy transition and manages a globally diversified portfolio of lithium-focused royalties in electrification and decarbonization. With 32 royalties on 29 higher-grade, lower-cost projects from exploration to production, LIRC covers all the bases with well-managed risk, ESG considerations, and a scalable royalty structure. Lithium Royalty Corp is traded on the Toronto Stock Exchange ticker symbol LIRC. To find out more, visit lithiumroyaltycorp.com. So let's talk about Albemarle acquiring Liontown, but the Liontown, the price is now above $3. It started out below $3 because of risk ARB, et cetera, but not expecting another bid. But if it's above three bucks, it seems that market's speculating there may be a, another bidder. Well, everyone's saying it's... Uh... Reinhardt, but if you look at the logistics and the reality of it, Albemarle is far better set up to be doing the downstream processing and the integrating of the original off-takers and the client base. Whereas coming from scratch without downstream, I guess maybe she would look at intermediates or whatever. I just feel logically Albemarle is better positioned in terms of who has the original off-takes and their ability to do the converting on behalf of the off-takers either in China or, or the US. So they should be in a better position to pay 
what is the top price. So I don't, the other, I don't know exactly on Oslo. I know the UK and South Africa in terms of stock exchange, but could someone be trying to make a play just to squeeze a higher price? Maybe, but I think they're in some limited exclusivity period and the board has basically said if it gets the binding, they're going to recommend it. I think it's Albemarle's to lose and Albemarle has to go through this diligence period. They indicated, I didn't listen to the call, but I saw some quotes from it on David Deckelbaum at Cowan wrote a good note. I just tweeted about Albemarle said one of the items for their diligence was to examine the details of the offtake contract that they have with you know Ford and Tesla. Uh, because I think the first five years, Liontown was planning to just produce spodumene. Tesla, theoretically, like that material may be going to Corpus Christi, for all we know, for Tesla. And in Ford's case, I have no idea who Ford would be converting with in China or elsewhere. So does Ford have its own converters or will Albemarle now like take this over? But Albemarle will become a spodumene producer pretty much for a period of time, which they aren't really currently, if those agreements hold as is. And also Albemarle, if they go through this, will be acquiring mining expertise really for the first time because they, they don't own Talazin or they own 50% of it, but they're, they're not considered miners. And, and at Wajina with Minrez, it's not Albemarle personnel. In this case, they could be acquiring mining expertise for the first time. Any further thoughts on this is this bid of $3.5 billion, I think US, or I think that's the number, equates to 20% of Albemarle's market value, right? That's very significant. I think I did an analysis earlier this year that if Tesla were to buy Albemarle, right, it, it would only be like 4% of Tesla's market cap. So this is a very meaningful percentage and you're, but you're not seeing a Rio Tinto, you're not seeing other players come here. You're seeing an Albemarle's case and also an SQM's case, which bid for Azure. These, they're, they're not going for clay. They're not going for DLE. They're not really even investing too much to grow, you know, conventional brines. They're, they're buying new discoveries, right? Or advanced development projects in hard rock in tier one jurisdictions. What is that? Like, like, why are the OEMs investing in DLE, you know, in clay? And, but those who know the lithium industry best are, are investing in hard rock. So this is a question I've been asking for some time. How it is, you know, the incumbents are going for conventional flow sheet and mostly hard rock, some brine. And as we've said before, we like Brian, where it sits on the cost curve is fantastic. It's just a question of development timelines and so on is a little slower, but on the cost curve, it's great. And on, on a large scale, decent spodumen assets, it's also, you can get your cost down and green bushes is an example of that. We'll see what the next range of projects looks like. And then you have all of the non-industry insiders, the OEMs, the battery companies, the Rios, the whatever, buying all of these things that have got unconventional flow sheets and CapEx per ton numbers that are watering. So I'm not sure why. It, it looks as if it's an ESG carbon footprint thing. It's a lot easier to put that in a PowerPoint than to say, you know, I'm, I'm doing hard rock, but as Ken Brinson has mentioned on a lot of projects, depending on how they're going to produce, you can use solar for power. You can use electric 
trucks you can you can if it's dms you can do dry stack tailings and so on it seems to be a, an easier way to keep on the good side of the sort of the investment community that requires some box ticking but it's going to be interesting you think the oems investing in dle stories is, is stellantis i think has followed on their investment in vulcan or control thermal you think this is largely for ESG virtue signaling, venture capital investment, and not like that serious? In their minds, I think that they think it's serious, but the reality is you are putting yourself at risk for worst case scenario delays and absolute worst case scenario, non-qualified material or not even built or doesn't operate it is to my mind quite a risk and it, it's an interesting thing because right now as the industry stands china makes a high percentage of lithium chemicals and even higher percentage of cathode and battery cells and for now they keep shipping them they are headed to be almost 90 percent of the cathode market and then a high number on the cells so until ex-China facilities are built and until they're operational, China's going to be in that position. And so the alternative, if your investment fails, is to be buying cells where the material has come from all and sundry and probably worse than just ex-China hard rock. It could be lipidolite, it could be DSO, it could be a number of things. So it's an interesting one. It's a calculated bet and I think a dangerous one. So the auto OEMs, yeah, we just discussed those, but the oil companies are also investing in DLE. So like Coke invested in standard lithium and Compass, a standard lithium just put out a new feasibility study, I, which was largely on stage one. I think it was 5,400 tons focused on carbonate using a 30,000 ton carbonate price. And it came up with, I think, an NPV of $550 million, IRR of 24%. Um, and then the CapEx, I think, was like $365 million, but off of 5,400 tons, that was nearly $70,000 CapEx. The stock was off uh, a bit, but it still has $550 million market cap. What are your thoughts on that? And and then I'll make a comment on E3, which we were always saying I was like two years behind standard or, or the new lithium standard in Alberta, that stock's rallied very aggressively and had a ribbon cutting ceremony. They have an investment, small investment from Exxon affiliate Imperial. Exxon recently invested in Galvanic, near standard. So the oil companies, I think I have greater faith in the oil companies than the auto companies, because at least they're in the chemical business. But what do you think about the standard news and, and oil company investment? in the space. So for the oil company investment, if you think about it, some of these resources are enormous. So if they can crack the code, then they have long life assets that they will have secured. So if you look at E3 and these other ones, they've got enormous uh, resource size. With respect to standard, I'd need to do the maths in terms of having it locally sourced and securing the credits and so on. Can you get a premium price for that? That's a question to factor in, because if you do, because again, if you compare 70,000 CapEx versus, it depends if you're talking integrated or if you just, the spodumen arrives, you can still 
build chemical conversion capacity in China for six to eight thousand dollars a ton. So you've got over sixty thousand of capex excess capex to do that plant. Now the question is, if you're getting the RA credits, does that and some of the uh, the, the input costs and so on can get written down. Is that sufficient or does it leave you still tight? But that, that is, that is something that we've noticed on the unconventional flow sheets are all coming in 50, between 50 and $70,000 a ton, which is substantially higher than conventional capex like straight brine or integrated spodumen or integrated production that's maybe 30 or top 35. Again, it's a big, it's a big gamble on the upfront. Uh, once you've got it up and running, I presume on the OPEX, it's okay, but it's, it's quite a check to the independent, to secure independent supply for the U S it's going to come at a price. They say they want to be in production, I think in 2026, but they still need to get financed. They still need to finalize their agreement with Langzess. I don't think there is some cost of the brine. I don't know if that was included in the DFS so that they need to cut that arrangement. They have BNP helping with some debt financing. We haven't heard them like we've heard Piedmont and Ioneer and, and Lithium Americas yet talk too much about like DOE related loans. But I think the DOE has granted Albemarle some money for Magnolia and, and they're keen on geothermal and the Salton Sea. So theoretically, there could be some low-cost U.S. funding there. Coke wasn't mentioned in the recent press release, which was, I thought was a little bit of a surprise. That would be helpful, Howard. If you think about it, looking at what's happening on the downstream with cell capacity and some cathode, the U.S. needs to get going with lithium production. You need to start putting projects, getting them up, because at the moment, there's just nothing happening. And I, you want to, if you want to have domestic supply, you really need to get these projects started now. Yeah, I saw actually Lithium Americas tweeted some yellow trucks. Construction is underway at Thacker Pass. So I expect we'll see construction pictures for the next kind of three or four years for that project as it gets into production. So that that's, that's good. I think they're waiting for GM has a, another half of their investment to, to put in there. But so rooting for them, rooting for standard, rooting for E3. It's great that E3 finally has gotten the recognition. There was always like there was Vulcan, there was standard, and there was Lake who had very high valuations and E3 was neglected. And now that their field pilot is underway, they've always had the support of the government. We've always assumed that this would get permitted. It's Alberta, but they... They're now going to test it. It's a pilot. It's where it, where Standard was two years ago when they were first piloting it. And so there's a lot of speculative interest uh, in E3 and, and very happy for all the long-term shareholders. Uh, we've been talking about that story since 8 million market cap and less than 40 cents in 2019. And it's now $4.70 and I think higher market cap than maybe Frontier Lithium and, and Critical Elements, which we referenced. Let's talk about Canada a bit and James Bay in particular. We called some of these stocks using our meet the Flintstones metaphors, the Barney Rubble hard rocks, TSX may not understand. There's some valuation disconnect in, in our opinion there, but we have a lot of, we spoke to a number of companies in the last few weeks who are 
we haven't spoken about before, like the Brunswick's and the Ophir's and, and the Q2's who raised money earlier in the year, but then weren't able to do anything because of the fires. Winsome, we've, of course, a client of ours talked about a lot. They got five drill rigs turning champion electric metals. A lot of them are putting out press releases now, and we're going to expect some kind of like drill results. But as we talk to investors and the like, everybody keeps coming back to James Bay being a very hot region. Winsome came out with some resource, uh, with some press release recently, as did you know, Critical Elements, I think up with some grab samples. Any thoughts, commentary, you know, Rodney, on James Bay, Ontario, Rock? It's great that everyone's back out in the field. The Greenstone Belt there is proving to be a bit of a gift that keeps on giving. So I, I think we're going to have some more successes there. I raised this a little while ago. If you look at how many 100 million ton or potential 100 million ton deposits are popping up everywhere. These days, I think the hurdle for getting ahead has got a lot harder. Our scoreboard, we cut it off in terms of what we display at 25 million US dollars market cap, but we track everyone and you take all of the developers below 100 and below 25 million US and above and the unlisted and we're over 200. So I think there's a lot of companies competing for money, which makes things difficult because junior miners are always in need of cash. Um, and as much as the world needs lithium, the vast majority of that 200 plus list is not going to be in built and in production by 2030. And a lot of them won't survive. So it really is important. I think that people select companies are going to get to 50 million tons plus and, and get ahead. There just isn't the staff and the expertise in most companies to take it beyond exploration. So you need success. And we think James Bay is a great area along with some other parts of, of Canada because it's largely underexplored. We know lithium is not rare and it's proving to be the case as people make new discoveries. But there's more than a handful of there's people like Critical Elements and so on that are ready to go and they're expanding their resource. But for, for the new crop, I think you've got to get to 50 million tons as a minimum, if not more. And Oz, maybe a little different. You've got the next lot, you've got Global Lithium and Delta coming up is the next lot. Uh, but behind that, people are drilling and seeing where they're going. Azure, of course, has come through. And these are the businesses that are attracting the incumbents. You know, Azure's attracted, Patriot's attracted. I'm sure Winsome will be flagged up when people start to understand the size of that. And Global Lithium has Minres and a couple of others on its register. And we think Moblin is Sionis having a moment, but that asset is, I think, going to hit 100 million tons. So Howard, it's a lot of successes there. We'll need to see the economics rather than just drill. We'll need to see some kind of scoping study or feasibility equivalent and see where they're at. But it certainly appears that there is a lot of lithium to be found in the James Bay region. Yep. And that's why there's a lot of Australians in there, Crocodile Dundees. But some of these Canadian ones, as a, again, not to... I mentioned the Barney Rubble, but there's also, I, I've made this comparison to Ernest Hemingway that the sun also rises on European metals. This also could be the case for frontier and, and critical elements. This kind of slowly then suddenly 
type of activity. So what we saw, it was like a huge surprise to me to see the reaction in E3, right? Because the TSX has just been not as good as the ASX for lithium development stories. And we look at this Pierre Lassonde curve all the time and we say there's exploration where the stocks go up and then there's when you're going into production, the stocks go up. And in E3's case, they were like, they were somewhere in between, but I think the field pilot was like, it, 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 it was like in that discovery phase, or maybe the PLS on curve doesn't work exactly for a DLE like story, but uh, in the case of an EMH, which is definitely in that middle period or a critical elements or frontier that's in that middle period, these stocks are very illiquid, but you get a catalyst like a permit or like a strategic partner or in Frontier's case, like a road built, it, it doesn't take a lot of interest, buying interest. Like the volume has increased in E3, but it's not like tens of millions of dollars. It's single digit millions of dollars and just an absence of sellers that re-rate these stocks. So we think, and full disclosure, we do advise European metals holdings and critical elements. We're a big shareholder in Frontier and some others. I'm surprised that Piedmont and Siona haven't rallied in into that kind of production phase. Siona had its own issues. We'll leave, we won't comment too much on that, but the Atlantic news is great for Piedmont for sure. And on the Siona production news, which they came out with, which is like Siona is doing well. And so that we still love and are supportive of, of Piedmont. Overall valuations for producers like Albemarle are low. What triggers a re-rate, Rodney, to a specialty chemical multiple? And, and, and what, what are your thoughts just on pricing? What's the, we still have this drip feed of prices going down. It's interesting because I saw Joe on a podcast recently and he bought Albemarle and you and I have both bought it. So that's three for three that we all like Albemarle at, at these prices. I found it bizarre given the margins that they earn and they still, if you look at the delta of their effective net price that they receive relative to the change in lithium prices, they clearly still have some tied or delayed or fixed contracts. So they're still generating, you know, a good money. And if you look at their forecasted growth in production and the China plants coming online and so on, it is odd that they are trading at mid single digit price to earnings, never mind EBITDA. And I saw something interesting. Someone posted a chart on Twitter that uh, Pilbara has now shot up the short interest and it's now 10% of Pilbara has been short. For a company that's sitting on a war chest of cash, either someone's thinking they're going to make a mistake or that's, that's crazy. It's not like a financially vulnerable. Or, or they think sparring prices are going to collapse. That would, again, looking at EV sales to date, looking at forecasted going forward, looking at ESS, looking at everything, everything's on track demand wise. We know what the Chinese import numbers are for spodumin and for carbonate and so on. I just, it makes no sense. And you've got to look to where the marginal cost producer is at. Now, if spodumin drops, then Lipidolite is not economic, so Lipidolite production has to stop. And we saw that recently when it went to $25,000, $30,000 a ton, we saw Lipidolite come go offline. The other thing is that people you need to keep an eye on is, uh, yes, there are some royalty, there's a royalty delta on it, it's based on value, but you know, the cost curve for spodumin has also crept up a bit. So 
it's not to say that we're anywhere near a trouble zone, but it's not the marginal cost producer now that Core and some of the others have come online is not as low as you think. So um, we'll have to see. It seems that the, the buyers really are holding off, uh, and that's, you know, China. So, um, and I think people do need to be aware of CATL and BYD's size in the market. A lot more is being traded on the China spot market. So I don't think it's a price to be dismissed. I think you need to pay attention to it. But I can't see how, it, quite frankly, how they can hold out for much longer and not restock. So I'd be very surprised if we get to year end and see no sort of stabilization and potentially a move up. And then we'll need to see, but it, it always seems that analysts in particular at the major banks seem to have backwardation priced into lithium all the time. So it's like iron ore. If you have a backwardation, what are those multiples traded? You're saying not to ignore the China spot market because it is becoming increasingly liquid, sure. but also becoming the carbonate, but also becoming somewhat more liquid is the CME contract for hydroxide. So what's that telling that us? That is telling you something else. So by the end of 2024, they have a price close to the mid 40s. So they're expecting a 50% increase from where we are now in the, in the spot uh, CJK market for hydroxide. So they're saying it's going to go from 30 to 45 ish. So the expectation is that hydroxide, which is interesting because against the Guangzhou carbonate futures, it's telling you the opposite. So I think there's some trading. I'm sure people are, are trading that relative, but the CME is saying it's going to improve and, and we've got open interest now of just under 6,000 contracts. Now, that won't sound like a lot, but it's doubled. The open interest has doubled in the last six to eight weeks. I don't know if one can extrapolate that forever, but if the liquidity continues to improve like it is, then that will start to have a bigger impact at what number 6,000 tons is not a lot relative to the uh, Chinese carbonate future. But if that were to creep up to 25 to 50,000 tons, that would start to be meaningful. Okay. You're watching that very closely. And uh, unlike uh, a lot of the sentiment out there, it is in contango, at least with a 12 month view, right? It's upwardly sloping. Let's see if that proves to be the right indicator compared to some of the other markets out there. So anyway, it, the, the beauty of lithium is that it's still a young, immature market, opaque, and creates volatility. Within volatility are opportunities to um, trade stocks and do well and just be mindful of good quality companies, good quality assets, good managements. But even some of the best companies, they get overvalued at times and maybe take some profits. And then there are some also great quality companies that are undervalued that you could be buying into these dips. We, we are of the view that higher love is coming for many of the companies that were at the ASX Lithium Rocks conference last week and that we discussed here today. Again, none of this is financial advice, but if you enjoy this content, please uh, don't forget to uh, like, subscribe to Rockstock channel. And if you want to support us further, we just had a couple of one-on-one -on -one calls with our $300 Patreons earlier this week who wanted to get some more specific color on specific names that they own or are, are, are thinking of owning or are thinking of selling. 
and we're happy to provide that to others at that at that tier and there are other benefits at lower tiers so with that happy friday rodney we're going to continue doing this once a week record it now publish it hopefully by market open australia time some 50 percent or so of our viewers are in Australia. And again, want to give just a, a hat tip to the money of mine guys who have done some good work and I'd encourage you to watch some of their videos in addition to ours. Take care. Have a good weekend.